This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book and is number 26 of the series, The Form of Sound Words. It may be that I should explain, as we've got so far through this series, number 26, that we have taken the title of this study from the writings of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to his son Timothy. He said, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me, and the things that thou hast heard of me, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. The word is translated elsewhere by the word pattern. Hupotive posing doesn't mean that you're put rigidly into a sort of mechanical repetition of the Apostle's words, but that you never depart from the rough sketch you're filling in details all the time, but you're keeping to the plan. And we adopted just the alphabetical order. There was no reason why one should come in front of the other, but it was suggested that we might do it. And so we've reached the word hope in our study. It's very, very strange, and yet not strange, how the word hope is used. Nine times out of ten, if you speak to a person who has no hope, you say to them, are you saved? I say, I hope so. That means to say they're not. That's the way the language is degenerating. It's one of the signs of our character that there's hardly a word in the English language or any other language which improves in the course of time. It generally goes down. Think of all the words that belong to art. Craft, cunning, design. Artful, crafty, cunning, designing are all evil. Not that they are evil, but that's what happens. And when the Apostle wrote the epistle to the Ephesians to those Gentiles who were under his care, among other things he said they were aliens from the citizenship of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope. Well, here we have a word then, which comes into the Scriptures, and it gives us that expectation, which shall not be ashamed, because it's resting upon the God who keeps his word. Now, I'd like you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6 for a commencement, as we think about this. Hebrews, the sixth chapter, is dealing at the end with the fact that God made promises. He says in verse 12 of Hebrews 6, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Well, then he goes on to speak about this promise. And when God made a promise to Abraham, Because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise 
the immutability of his counsel confirmed it with an oath that by two immutable things by which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. That's the way in which this promise is spoken of in the New Testament. There's no need for God to take an oath to convince us that what he says is true. If he's the living God, if he's the true God, what he says goes, whether it's merely a yes or a no. But he condescended to human frailty and he swore by himself. I haven't got very much faith in those people who come to me now and again and say, now this is without the word of a lie. I said, well, what do you usually tell me then, you see? Let your yea be yea and your nay nay. But here God condescends, confirms it with an oath. Immutability. Impossibility, it says so. Impossible for God to lie. Paul, writing to Titus, speaks of the hope of eternal life wherein it was impossible for God to lie. Aren't you glad there are some things that the Almighty God cannot do? You listen to the man who's speaking in Hyde Park, he, he talks about as though we say God can do anything. God cannot, he's limited by righteousness and holiness. Thank God he is. He cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. He cannot break his word. Otherwise, where should we be? And so it says here, this hope is likened to an anchor. An anchor. Now once I remember having to speak to some young people, younger people than you are here, and I said, well you better pick out a word. I'll read verse 19 again. Pick out a word with four letters which you think is most important. You have a look at it too. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within the veil. So we've got hope and soul and veil and so on. Well, of course, you know, one in order to be very pleasing to me said, the soul. No. Well, of course, hope was the key word. No. The veil. No. I said, I'm going to pick on a funny one. You think, I'm going to pick on the word that. But why should that be important? Well, supposing you think of an anchor and the anchor is dropped overboard, and it never finds anchorage. You can't find anything to grip. Well, it's no use. The anchor is no use unless it's got that. See, your faith will never save you. It's Christ who saves you because you believe him. You cannot use the word faith in the New Testament sense. I say, haven't you got faith? You say, no, I haven't got faith. I've got to have faith in somebody or in a statement. Merely to have faith is a lucky charm. My only faith, the faith which is the real thing, rests upon a statement that I can trust and a God who can I, I can believe. So we have that within the veil. Well now you know the veil was hanging down in front of the temple or the tabernacle. And inside beyond that veil was the mercy seat which is a symbol and a picture of the finished sacrificial work of Christ. And if you have a hope that's a scriptural one, 
it's resting there. There is a hymn that says, My hope is fixed on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You don't go there and present your birth certificate or a list of promises of things you will do or hope to do. You stand there and you say like the publican, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And there's the work. Another figure, another thought that could be gathered from this word anchor is this, that if you're standing on a high cliff, say, looking down on the estuary or the bay, you can tell whether the tide is coming in. Because every ship that's riding at anchor swings round and faces the tide. And every Christian who's got an anchorage faces the tide and the other poor wretches are drifting about because they've got no anchorage. Carried about with every wind of doctrine. Nothing stable about them. You see? So this is a wonderful figure. Well now some folks have got a little difficulty about verse 20, which I didn't read. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, how can you talk about a forerunner with an anchor? You don't imagine to see John the Baptist running along with an anchor. Well, the Bible, you know, shuts up to you if you begin hypercritical. It's like a sensitive plant. If you come to it and say, well, I don't understand this, but I'd like to find out, it'll open. If you eat examine the contour of the coast of Greece, you'll find that they had a rocky sort of indented coast and they couldn't always drop anchor. What happened was they signalled to the quay and somebody came out in a little boat and took that anchor and put it in the quay. And I've seen that done at Cherbourg. Not the anchor, but I've seen just the same thing, the boat, great liner goes in, and it doesn't drop anchor. But they come out and they take the ropes back in the boat and they fix it on the quay. That's what our Saviour has done. He's not a forerunner running in front of anybody. He's gone in front. And he's put that anchor. It's the only anchor I know that goes up. All the others go down. Well, that is one of the figures used by God and not by me of this question of hope. There's one other word we can add to our three, to our two, immutability, impossibility. From the prophet Malachi we borrow the words, I am the Lord, I change not. And because God doesn't change, because it's impossible for him to lie, because of the immutability of his counsel, if he's made a promise, we can rest assured that he will keep it. Well now let's look at this chart that we have because I've sought to lift out some of the outstanding features and um, those who take this tape recording have a reproduction of this about postcard size and uh, are able to look at it wherever they may be. So I refer to it here. You see the word elpis, E-L-P-I-S, is the noun and elpizo is the verb. And occasionally, the translators have used their liberty to uh, be a bit free, and you sometimes miss instead of gain by that. When you look at Romans, the 15th chapter, 
It says, um, I'll start reading at verse 8 because that introduces the subject. 15th chapter. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Our Saviour did not come in the first case to found a church. He came to fulfil promises that had been made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and so on. He was born at Bethlehem because he was the rightful heir to the throne of David. Nothing to do with the church. Church isn't mentioned. Not for a long time. And that's what the Apostle is saying. That Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust, now the God of hope, feed you with all joy and peace and believing. And you miss it, you see. Because if you're reading the original, you see the word trust and the word hope are just the words El Paizo and Elpis. Now it seems to me when we are dealing with such sacred things as this, that it would be very wise to sacrifice the facility of using synonyms and say, let's put the word twice. Don't be afraid of putting the word twice. So we'll put it, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now the God of that hope, because it's the article in front of it this time, which is omitted. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now the God of that hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. There's a lot there that needs explanation. Take us too far afield. But there you see the word hope in its two forms, noun and verb. Uh, I've got a reference to Hebrews 11.1 1, and that is important because of the light we have upon the uh, uh, word that comes there from the papyrus. Most of you know that there has been unearthed from the sands of Egypt bundles of papyrus that go back to the days of the Apostle Paul. They are not uh, documents in the sense of valuable treaties or books. They are waste paper. But how valuable waste paper would be for somebody, an archaeologist, who's digging up the ruins of London after we're all blown to bits, you see. He digs up the ruins of London and he finds bits of odd paper with writing on it and parts of newspapers, you see. They're very valuable to check over the meaning of words. Well, that's what happened there. The sands of Egypt are so dry that this papyrus has remained, whereas in moister soil it goes to pap, lost. Well, Hebrews 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. One of the statements made with regard to hope is made by the Apostle Paul in Romans the 8th chapter. That which is seen is not hope. For if we see it, why do we wait for it? Hope is always connected with something that's on in front. So here it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so you will find that Abraham is picked out in uh, verse 9, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, 
dwelling in tents, not tabernacles, just tent dwellings, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. But the point I wanted to make in this verse, 11, this one, verse 1 of chapter 11 is the word substance. Because in this papyrus, it was discovered that it was used as a legal term. And you could translate, uh, give a free translation of Hebrews 11. Now faith is the title deeds of things hoped for. And Abraham, who came out of Ur of the Chaldees, a fairly civilized city, was willing to dwell in a tent in the land of promise as though he was a stranger because he looked for something better. But he had in his possession the title deeds. If you'd have gone up to Abraham and said, well, I'm sorry to see you here, A.B., you came out of Ur of the Chaldees and now you're just living in this tent. He says, oh, don't you trouble. I've got the title deeds. And so it says, uh, truly if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned, but now the desire are better, that is a heavenly. And this brings in a, a point that you do well to ponder in Scripture. God will never give you less than he promised, but very often he gives you more. He gave Abraham a portion of this earth, and you can read the boundaries of it in the book of Genesis, and the nations that were around about it. You can plot it on the map. And that was fixed, and it couldn't be forfeited. And yet Abraham never possessed it. He had to even buy a burial ground. That's all he had in it. Why? Why, because God had spoken to him privately. It comes out in the New Testament that there was something even better. Uh, he said, I'll keep my word with regard to this land. And Abraham closed with it. And he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And it obtains also in our calling. In Ephesians, the apostle says, speaks of the hope of your calling. And that will be verified by God, whatever happens. You can't forfeit it if you belong to him. But the Philippians comes along and says, but don't forget there's the prize of the high calling. And even the apostle Paul said, I'm not sure about that. But he was perfectly sure about his hope. And so you see, there's plenty to learn with regard to these things, keeping them in their rightful place. Now, so far as hope is used in the New Testament, I think it can be summed up generally under these two headings. It's either the fulfilment of a promise, or the realisation of a calling. There is a promise is made. The hope of the promise of God, said the Apostle Paul. Promises were made. And when promises are made, they incite hope, don't they? And of course the world has been so many times disappointed that we have a proverb that some people's promises are like pie crust. They're meant to be broken, but not so with God. So we have in these scriptures, hope is the expectation that God will keep his promise. The Apostle Peter speaks about the great and precious promises. And Christ has come to fulfill these promises and make them real. And then, hope is also used of the realisation of your calling. The one hope of your calling, says the Apostle. And you may say to me, well, what do you mean by calling? Well, that's a long way back in the alphabet. We did look at it. Calio to call gives us the ecclesia, a called out people, and all the derivatives of it. 
And God calls. Who be called, he justified. Who be justified, he glorifies. Calling. He doesn't let you wander on in this world and you wake up in the next and say, well, I never knew about a saviour. Or you've got to know about him here. And the call doesn't come by a voice from heaven that's like it struck down the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. It comes through just an ordinary person like myself opening up the scriptures. And while I'm doing it, without me knowing a word about it, somebody says, I see it. Somebody says, I believe it. Somebody says, you know, I went to that meeting and wondered whatever I was going to hear. I came out and I knew. I got touched by it. We don't chase anybody about here. It's God that calls. And you can't gate crash into this calling. It's Christ that calls. But oh, what a wonderful thing. He says, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So don't you wait for any extraordinary miracle to take place. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And if anyone has said, I hope so, in that sense, that means you don't have any hope. Perhaps after we've looked at these a little bit more carefully, you'll say, I, I have got the hope. And you try to take it away from me and see what's going to happen. That's the stuff to give them, of course. So now we've got these two. The fulfilment of a promise and the realisation of a calling. Shall we look at that passage which we have there in Ephesians 1, 18? Just to do what the Apostle says. You, put, you, you use the words that I've used before you start teaching somebody. Ephesians 1. He says in verse 15, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, pray for you. Now, what was missing? If you knew somebody who had got faith and love, you say they're well on the way, aren't they? But you know as well as I do that the Apostle has said, faith, hope, love, these three. Well, they got faith. And they got love. So he says, now I'm going to pray for the hope to make it complete. So will you look at verse 17? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, and without being able to prove this, it's possible this means that you will get that wise and revealing spirit by acknowledging him. Not merely the knowledge, but by acknowledging him. The scripture says, then shall they know, as they follow on to know the Lord, one step at a time. And sometimes we meet people, and you're conscious that they know all about this teaching. But they wait it over, and it's going to cost too much. They can't pay the price. They won't acknowledge. And so, deadness comes in and blindness. So he says, I pray for a wise and revealing spirit in the acknowledgement of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. So you have a calling, and attached to it is a hope. Well, that leads us to the remainder of this uh, set out on the chart. There are at least three spheres of blessing. We cannot enter it now. We looked at it in other times. We looked at it under the word adoption. Let's come to the Sermon on the Mount for a moment. So often quoted. 
the meek shall inherit the earth. And the prayer in the Sermon on the Mount is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And you could button all those very people who said it, and they would say they were going to heaven. Well, you see, why are we illogical when we're dealing with the Bible? You say the meek shall inherit the earth, and that means you, yes, and you'll go to heaven, yes. You don't know whether you're coming or going then, do you? Don't you see that when the Sermon on the Mount was uttered, nobody knew that Christ was going to be crucified. And when you get to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, when Peter heard about it, he said, Not so, Lord, and turned round on his horse. See? Why are you putting yourself in the Sermon on the Mount when you know as well as I do we all start at the cross and it wasn't even mentioned? But there will be a people. This will be fulfilled. But that doesn't include you and me. The earth belongs to this people. So we have an earthly calling. And Matthew 24 is the exposition of the coming of Christ with regard to that people. You know, Matthew 24 arose out of the fact that he said, you shall, your house is left unto you desolate. You shall not see me henceforth till you say, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And the disciples looked at that temple, the great stones in that temple, and they said, look at the building and the temple. He said, believe me, the time will come and there shall not be left one stone upon another. And that's true. Then they said, what should be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? And he first of all said, you beware of deception. That's the first thing to watch out. You're not led astray. And he tacked on that second coming to the prophecy of Daniel. And we can't put that in five minutes either, can we? You see, it's, it's one in its calling. It's nothing to do with the church in Matthew 24. It doesn't exist. It's this people who were a kingdom people. It's Christ who was born as king speaking to them. And he was rejected as king and he told them. Well then, seeing that Abraham could look for a heavenly Jerusalem, we find there's a heavenly aspect of this. Will you turn to 1 Thessalonians 4? 1 Thessalonians 4. That's a bit further on in the, in the book. And the Apostle writing speaks about, in the first chapter, he says in verse, in verse 3 of chapter 1, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labour of love, your patience of hope. So they weren't merely those who had faith and hope and love, but they had the corresponding work and labour and patience with it. And when you get to the last chapter of this epistle, he picks it all up again. As you could find, if you read chapter 5, he's got the word faith and hope in verse 8, and further down he's got labour and patience and so on. But that's not my point. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Now that is the title God uses of the death of his redeemed people. I've searched the scriptures and I believe I've looked at every single reference there is in Old Testament and New, but yet I might not be right, I'm not infallible. But I have a feeling that there is no statement in the scripture which says that an unsaved person, when he dies, falls asleep. 
We do know positively that those who are believers in Christ are said to be asleep in Christ. So I'm concerned with the positive. I leave the other poor people in the hands of the Lord. But don't you see, 1 Corinthians 15 says, the sting of death is sin. But if my sin's forgiven, and nobody can lay anything to my account, and condemnation is impossible, the sting's removed. And so in the same chapter it says, though that sleep in Christ. And even Job said, I should awake. And the psalmist said, I should be satisfied when I awake with his likeness. Sleeping and waking. And here it says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. He doesn't say you don't sorrow at all, that would be foolish. But he says, you're not plunged in a hopeless sorrow. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive now, if the second coming of Christ is to take place in some date in the future, of which we know nothing, well, there must be some people living on the earth at the time, whenever it may be. Well, what about them? Well, he's catering for them. We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not go before, that's the old English word prevent, shall not go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Most people say there's no comfort there. They want to be told that their loved ones are in glory at this present moment, looking over the battlements of heaven, down and looking at us now. That's a comfort for them, isn't it? Not a word about that, he said. Their hope before them is they sleep, they don't know how long they're asleep, there were the days in past, long ago, when the ceiling could fall down in my bedroom and wouldn't wake me up. I wouldn't know. Of course, I don't sleep like that now. But when you fall asleep here, you'll have no consciousness of time. won't matter to you. And then, the gathering. Well, that's another aspect, you see. But then there's a third one. And for that, we turn to Colossians chapter 3. Our time is pretty up, but we can just have time to touch upon this third aspect. Colossians chapter 3. If he then be risen with Christ, of course, not physically, but by reckoning, God has reckoned. If he then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For he died, not merely you're dead, he died, you died with him when he died for you, that's the reckoning. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Can you tell me a safer place than that in all the universe for your life to be hid? If we believed it, we shouldn't worry much, should we? Your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, that's the opposite of the word hid, it's the epiphania, the epiphany, the shining out the manifestation. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. 
in some of this has to be, and how are we going to get there? <laughs> I know no more about that, friends, than the man in the moon. All I know that he has undertaken it. And one day, to our joyful surprise, we shall find it's absolutely, perfectly, wonderfully true. Well, that's as far as we can go, trying to make this book live, using the words which the Apostle has written for our learning and seeking just to put them in their place and leave them there. Maybe go away and say, well, I am thankful to know that if God's made a promise, you'll keep it. And if he calls, oh, may I answer. And may I come to him without any idea that I've got to bring qualifications. My one qualification is, I do need him badly. That's all. And he'll make up the rest. The question of whether you're good or bad, or whether you do right or wrong, comes afterwards. After you're saved, and after you're a believer, is the time to begin to look for fruit. Get the root first of all, friends, and the fruit will come as surely as night follows day.